right, everybody, welcome, welcome here to show 134 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from the Baltics, from Eastern Europe, joined here by my co-host Alec Harris from Eastern Seaboard of U.S. and Halo Privacy. Alec, how are you, man? Gents, how's it going? Always a pleasure. Very good, very good. Happy Friday to you. Very happy today to interview and introduce our special guest, Mateusz Machaj. He is uh, from Poland. And actually, 19 long years ago, incredible, he founded the Polish Mises Institute. He has published many economic and philosophical books in English. Uh, very successful institute there in Poland, very close to me here in the Baltics. And uh, we actually have never met. And uh, I think he's about my age. I'm actually very happy to finally uh, speak to him. And we'll talk a lot about uh, freedom and economics here today. So happy to finally uh, speak with him. Mateusz, thanks a lot for joining us and uh, welcome. Hello there. I'm very happy to be here. And thank you for such a kind introduction. Yeah, really appreciate it. Really appreciate you coming on. I've heard great things about the Polish Mises Institute. It's kind of a crime that I've never made it down there to any of your events or whatnot. But uh, yeah, I guess for those uh, people, we have a lot of American listeners, of course, uh, a lot of people that are familiar with the Mises Institute in Alabama. Maybe just a quick intro from you and, and how it all got started for you and the Mises Institute in Poland. Well, I was studying economics uh, 22 years ago. I started to study economics and got interested after a year in Austrian economics. And I realized that it's an interesting approach to economic issues and it's a fun approach. And then I thought that how about we start an institute that promotes this fun approach, even though I was actually inspired by my colleague who said, you know, let's do this, let's start Mises Institute. And I said, yeah, but you know, we're young and uh, there's still time. And he said, no, 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 no. Later on, there will be no time. And he was probably right. I, I wouldn't have started it uh, today. That would be too late. <laughs> but, but 19 years ago, it was about the time to do this and start the journey. How would you guys uh, characterize yourself? Because, you know, one of the free market think tanks over here in the Baltics that's very well known got started just, you know, as the, as the wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed, the Lithuanian Free Market Institute, you know, Rothbard mentions them in, in videos that a bunch of them came over to the U.S. and went to a lot of economists and tried to figure out what was going on and what ideas to bring back to Eastern Europe. There's not this sort of hard gap if you want to go really hardcore in the theory and philosophy like Mises Institute versus Cato Institute. The Lithuanian Free Market Institute kind of classifies themselves as just, you know, both an educational think tank, but also a policy, you know, advisory type of a think tank. Is there a distinction there for you guys in, in Poland? Sure, of course. We're not a policy-oriented institute at all. We are mostly focused on educational activities. We have a rich web, rich web page. We publish books, uh, mostly Austrian-oriented, but, but also, well, broadly understood Austrian-oriented. We publish both Hans-Hermann Hoppe and Deidre Makloski. Mm -hmm. So there is some spectrum, as you can see. Uh, we uh, also are engaged in many interesting educational projects. We are doing annually a uh, economic school that will actually happen in two weeks, where uh, we have a stipend program. Most gifted uh, economics students are coming for the school for four or five year, uh, sorry, four or five day course. Sort of kind of similar to Mises University, but I would say slightly more advanced. Um, 
And uh, what else? We published uh, we published a economics textbook that is being approved by the Ministry of Education in Poland uh, for for uh, uh, what's the name of the subject? How would you translate it? It's called Science of Entrepreneurship, or sort of like Basics of Entrepreneurship. Kind of like funny name, but in general, it's supposed to introduce you to economic uh, subjects. And yeah, we managed to uh, to actually write such a book, and it's free online. Was that a hard uh, process to get approved by the ministry? Oh yeah, it was really hard. Although the ministry, the the uh, the officials themselves were kind of friendly. The biggest problems we were having with the reviewers, of course. Mm. Uh, but then we managed. Yeah, we had to we had to apply it again. At first, they they threw it away, and we had to apply again. But after I think like four years or something, we managed to do this. And right now, it's available online for free to anyone. It's also uh, part of it is being present as YouTube videos, so you can watch them online. You can also buy a printed copy for like I don't know two and a half dollars, uh, basically at the cost of production. It's also open source. Anyone can use it and. Um, and they can they can adjust it to their own uh, their own preferences how to teach the subject. Excellent, cool. Well, I want to um, I want to just get right into it. Some current topics uh, that I think are uh, important for us today, but also we can we can sort of uh, you know give the classical liberal response and uh, certainly the Eastern European classical liberal response. And of course, the main topic on my mind and perhaps all of our minds is, is Ukraine. You know, I've been speaking about it a lot recently. We've done a lot of shows about it. What is your take uh, in Poland? Obviously, Poland has been the main uh, outlet and inlet for you know uh, refugees leaving Ukraine and and weapons and supplies getting back into Ukraine. It's been a pretty wild ride since February for uh, for obviously for Ukraine. Very sad, and we're standing with them. But but for Poland as well, how's it been there? Well, one of the main things is the refugee. Uh... I would say crisis, but but it was not really a crisis because we handled it kind of nicely and, and smoothly. Mm. Many millions of people going through the Polish border, many of them staying here. And we managed to, without refugee camps, actually, to help out those people here in Poland. So that was kind of amazing. And even though our country has some form of, uh, is as usually associated by ex- external, uh, by people outside of Poland, is associated with with sort of like anti-migration hostility or sort of like anti-migration sentiment. It, I mean, the, the current situation has proven that that's not the case. Well, at least not within this sphere, maybe. So uh, I would say we were. Uh, I mean, when you meet the Ukrainian person anywhere in in the world right now, and you say you're Polish. Basically, they want to hug you right away. Mm. So uh, the help has been immense, but also other other nations were also helpful. But here we are on the front line. So um, and then then the closest, the fastest way to even run to Western Europe is through Poland, right? So especially to Germany. Yeah, no, it's been incredible. I mean, from from the jump, like the Baltics have been. We've just been donating cash, supplies, anything we can, truckloads and truckloads going right down the Belarusian border, right through Poland and right into, you know, Ukraine and Lviv and everything. And uh, it's just been incredible to see, I think, specifically what Poland has been doing. And especially, I'm curious, though, because especially, 
you know, this is a big topic. I'm, I'm kind of not hoping for a huge answer, but particularly if we look at Poland and we look at Hungary, right? There has been this, at least from, from a distance, from someone observing, there has been some, let's say, less than liberal, more, a little bit more, it seems, autocratic tendencies going on from a distance in both Poland and Hungary over the last few years. Obviously, Hungary more, more famous with Orban. But the way that Poland has reacted certainly hasn't shown that. I mean, it's shown like full solidarity. They're not like closing the borders or anything like that, as you just alluded to. Is there some, some real break there happening, some, some differences? Because the quotes that I read from Orban still to this day as Ukraine is being invaded and, you know, rapes, tortured, mutilated citizens and deported, you know, millions of people uh, and refugees, millions of people. The, the quotes that I'm hearing from Orban are just still quite horrible as far as like a liberal, modern liberal society. And I'm not saying like Poland is completely in that boat, but my understanding was Poland at certain levels was kind of also leaning in this direction. Yeah, the ties are broken, basically. Uh, sort of Axis, Budapest and, uh, and uh, Warsaw was present, especially in European policy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, about those things, about the media and about uh, the judicial system, etc. Yeah. But since the Ukraine crisis, it actually, yeah, sort of like cooperation collapsed because uh, in international relations, suddenly there are more important things. And, and Poland and Hungary couldn't be more apart, I think. Uh, when you, especially when you look at different reactions in the European Union and in Europe in general, you will realize that, I mean, when you want to present the reactions uh, by nations, sort of stratify, you would say that extremely Ukraine-friendly Poland would be close to the top, right? And, and extremely, maybe not extremely, but like the least friendly, I would say, right? Because it's not like they are unfriendly yeah. to Ukrainians, but the, the least friendly would be Hungary. And everything, all the other countries, I guess, are in the middle between the two. So like majority, maybe I'm, I'm missing something, but I think that's how I would stratify it. Uh, even Switzerland, neutral country, or especially new, neutral Scandinavian countries, which are not neutral anymore. Neutrality is over, basically. So that shows you how much, I mean, how, how big of a change has happened. Uh, that's the biggest change in the last 30 years, I would say, in Europe. What's been interesting is someone published recently the uh, contributions to Ukraine by percentage of GDP. Uh, and it's perhaps not surprising, right? Because you look at proximity to the fight and so Estonia is number one, Latvia is number two, and Poland is number three, uh, with Lithuania and Norway right behind that. Um, but I guess you move a couple countries away from the Ukrainian border and the contributions are diminished and you see, I think, more calls for, you know, we need to end this and we need to negotiate with uh, Putin. And there's, uh, I think the closer you are to it, the, the more pragmatism you see. And so... My question is like, how does the rest of Europe come to be as steadfast as the bordering countries? You know, I would I would be careful with those statistics, <clears throat> even though it's it's very generous uh, for the Western, uh, Western Europe, uh, Eastern sorry, Eastern uh, Central Eastern uh, countries uh, to help Ukraine. We have to remember that a lot of this help is actually it's not net, meaning that a lot of it depends on the support. 
by the United States, right? So Poland is, for example, giving a lot of uh, arms to Ukraine, which is great, but at the same time, they are receiving in exchange something from the United States. Not right away. I tried to find the statistics showing this, mm. but I would say that all those tables that you see and the graphs <clears throat> that present the importance of, of uh, foreign support uh, to Ukraine, you have to remember that often it's, it's gross, it's not net. And some of it actually depends on, on some countries receiving right, uh, something in exchange from the United States. So I think in the United States role is even more crucial than we think for this. So that's, oh, that also partially explains why <clears throat> why countries uh, closer to Western Europe appear uh, much weaker in those supports, right? Because they are not part of this uh, collateral exchanges. That's a really interesting point. Do you have any idea when you look at net donations, who tops it? After the United States? Yeah. I don't know. I tried to find this answer, but, but you know, when you look at the statistics, for example, uh, United Kingdom is relatively high, but looks more modest to Poland. Uh, but if I would, if I were to guess, I, I would, okay, I'm not guessing. <laughs> I have to be, I have to be more modest here. Well, I guess it doesn't take in kind of the civil society um, contributions and support. And so, you know, the, as you mentioned, right, the absorption of, of refugees and um, the contribution of... But not only this, you have also, sorry to jump in, but you have also uh, fundraising, like private fundraising for Bayraktars, mm -hmm. right? So you, you, have, you, have, you have all those web pages where you can just gather fully private money, uh, private sources, and people are doing that even to fund, like buying actual military equipment. Mm -hmm. so, so that also happens, not only, not only uh, supporting Red Cross and all that, but, but actually... Uh, buying guns for them. One of the things that, you know, being as far away physically as I am, that has been helpful. And, um, you know, I always read these reports with a bit of suspicion, but um, is all of the anecdotal, you know, first person reporting that seems to be translated uh, out of, you know, supposedly from the Russian front lines of um, what the conditions are like for the Russian conscripts or the Wagner guys. And, uh, you know, it always paint. Now, part of this could be the angle that the Ukrainian side wants to present. But I would imagine in Poland, you have a lot of you know close accounts of what the front lines are like, what who is actually making progress, um, and is what you guys would hear anecdotally through family members that are you know getting first person reports lining up with media narratives, or is there a dislocation? I have no clue, and really I cannot answer that. I rely on exactly the same sources as you do, so I don't find myself to be in any advantage whatsoever to your situation. And uh, I also have trouble, even if I devoted like tens of hours to finding, uh, finding out about this, I cannot really do that. Like even when I when I read the outlets, so which is obviously officially, which is obviously also already filtered information by one person and this person received this information from another person and that person from another person and so on yeah i mean you have so much noise in here and it's really so difficult to hash it out so um i would say i have no clue okay so let's get into the idea of uh, this i think is one that's always pertinent and always interesting especially because 
you know, we're classical liberal oriented type show. We all like Bitcoin. We all like uh, freedom. It is a challenge, I think, in, uh, I don't know if I want to say educating, but just enlightening, illustrating to, let's say, classical liberals, libertarians in the U.S., the situation here on the ground in Eastern Europe. And I think that even if you would talk to a classical liberal in the U.K., they would be much more on our side as far as just solidarity, support. Like, this is not just, you know, okay, two states are fighting. We need to keep out of it because two states are fighting and, and bad, you know. <laughs> Very simplified answers that I see all the time uh, from classical liberals in the United States. This has gone on for years, right? This has been eight years that this war has gone on, this aggression from Russia. Of course, we're at another level here since February. But I've had this argument for eight years surrounding my friends uh, in Ukraine, like surrounding their sovereignty and liberty, like why they deserve a shot, why they deserve a vote. People seem to just not be so sympathetic to this view in America. Uh, from your contacts, from the people that you speak with, uh, do you notice that? Is that a problem to you? Uh, is there anything you want to say about the way that, let's say, <laughs> classical liberals are in Europe versus classical liberals in the US? We have to remember that the United States is a country even though it's, it's a highly civilized country. United States is a country which does not have an international law sentiment. They basically don't care about international law. <laughs> uh, maybe that's yeah a little bit overstating, but in general, uh, they are in, in, the fields, in the field of international law. They are on a completely different side than Europe is. <clears throat> Europe has huge respect, huge tradition, for tens of years for the international law and international law is crucial and sort of this lack of sentiment for the international law uh, i believe maybe that's one of the reasons there is there is a variety of reasons actually why american libertarians do not get what's going on really here but this is part of the reason probably is that they don't see that uh, they the united states doesn't have a history of internal wars on the european the, the, the same wars that happened on the on the continent you know, you have the civil war and that's basically it, right? Whereas Europe is basically, when you look at the history of Europe before 1945, and even after that, but like before 1945, it's just a history of wars, constant wars between the nations. And we have this introduction of international law, which is absolutely crucial and was absolutely crucial in understanding how to resolve conflicts. And when you have the issue of disputed territories, like you do in here between Russia and, uh, and Ukraine, not only, of course, but this is part of the argument, right? There, there are territories that are being disputed. Fine, even when you take the alien perspective, you are outside, you're not from Earth, and you just look at Earth and you see, okay, there is a disputed territory between country A and country B. So what do civilized nations do under the circumstances? Well, they have the tool to resolve the disputes over those territories. It's called international law. What civilized countries do not do is they do not send tanks and soldiers at the capital city of another country. And, you know, we have disputed territories, for example, between countries that are part of NATO, Turkey and Greece, for example. Uh, there, there is some tension uh, about those, the territories between them. But, you know, one country is not sending troops and tanks at the capital city of another country. This is, this is simply a thing, this is the basic thing that you have to recognize as a classical liberal or even an anarcho-capitalist. 
I mean, you're not, there is no justification to do that, even when you're thinking that you have some merits over disputed territories. So even assuming away the problem that you're mentioning, that uh, they don't really have the claim, the Russia, the Russian side do not have, does not have a claim uh, on those territories. Even if you assume it away and you're saying, okay, there, there may be some merit about those territories, still, I mean, it's totally out of proportion. You do not uh, employ those type of tools if you're a civilized nation. You don't employ those type of tools to resolve the conflict over the territories, period. Let me ask you a, a question from the U.S. perspective. Uh, previous to February of this year, I would say most Americans had never heard of Zelensky. And those that had heard of him thought of him as the guy that had the famous perfect phone call with, you know, former President Trump. Um, and so, you know, there was very little appreciation or understanding of what kind of leader he was uh, or how he was viewed in his country or in the region. So as for you guys, how would you have described Zelensky before the war started? He was not really... Uh, because he's been elected, what, in 2019, right, if I remember correctly? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I don't think people had any image of him in their mind, except for the fact that he was a political outsider when he started, right? Uh, at the very beginning, actually, Polish libertarian circles were kind of very sympathetic because he started off as a sort of libertarian uh, and then the party uh, associated, the movement associated with him sort of moved into the middles by saying that they are more like populist, libertarian and social, social libertarian, social liberal would be better expression using the classical terminology. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't say they had any, they would, he was not presented in the media like he is, of course, for the last half a year or so. Um, but Definitely what was being seen in, uh, in Poland was the fact that he is uh, a representative of the independent country that is sort of like trying to detach uh, the Ukrainian political sphere from Russian influences. And did he have uh, strong bilateral relations with the Baltics or with Poland? You know, the relation, yeah, I mean, the relations were kind of, uh, um, friendly, even before the war. So, um, especially, I, I'm not sure about the Baltics, but I think Matthew would say more about this. But in case of relations with Poland, yeah, they, they were kind of close, even before the war. Uh, we also have to remember that, you know, war sort of uh, was thrown onto us as a reality in February. But, um, the United States and and the uh, the intelligence associated with the United States uh, they already knew what's coming. I mean, but but not only the United States, but I think Macron a year ago said something that Poland needs to be protected by atomic umbrella or something like this. So they knew that that the Russian government is preparing itself for the invasion. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's been quite a bit of reporting on the early warning signs. Um, so uh, you mentioned it, right? But there's this, uh, I forget who said it, right? But it's a military saying that, you know, an enemy never surrenders until they've used their most powerful weapon. So uh, do you see an end game uh, that is less than that 
in Ukraine? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, pure speculation. I don't know, because it depends on so many factors. Uh, <clears throat> basically, it has to end. I don't see any other option. It has to end with some form of treaty between two countries because neither Ukraine nor Russia will disappear like uh, Nazi government did. Okay, so it will simply will not happen. Uh, Ukraine will receive constant support uh, from the United States and, and other countries around the United States. Um, definitely Ukraine will not be successful in invading Russia. Uh, so neither of the countries will fall. There will be no unconditional surrender. Right, like we did during, we had unconditional, so-called so unconditional surrenders during Second World War. This will not happen here, definitely. Period. So, if since this is not on the table, the only possibility is that it will go on for years, and it will turn into a very, very long, painful conflict. Which is, I kind of think this this will not happen. So it has to end with some form of peace treaty. But the question is, what kind of peace treaty? And this is also something I can hardly imagine, but I think looking at the long run perspective, this is the likely outcome because eventually both sides will be tired and uh, will have some form of resolution. Who would be the best arbiter? Who's the best convener? It, it, does, does such an entity or country exist that could bring both sides to a table? I don't think there's any. It's a different situation than in case of Israel and Palestine, for example, but uh, in here, I cannot really imagine because any potential arbiter will be treated by the current Russian side as a non-arbiter, as basically someone who is biased, right? Because, you know, in order to have some form of arbitration, you have to rely in some way on international law. And there is no possibility of interpreting international law uh, in such a way as not to see it as a form of direct invasion on another country. Again, tanks and troops directly at the capital city. This is, I mean, this is something that, I mean, <laughs> you cannot just, there is no negotiation about this, right? You just have to withdraw. <laughs> A lot of people like to say sanctions don't work. Then some people say, well, the sanctions actually were something that ended the apartheid. Other people say we should just go as hard as we can, like this Yale report that came out last month, which was uh, pretty incredible, actually. It talked about how uh, everyone was saying sanctions weren't working, specifically in Bloomberg, in the mainstream press in the US. I was getting requoted on CNN. And, you know, this Yale report comes out, which was incredible. I loved it because it was obviously what we're all expecting. I mean, you know, these news organizations are quoting like the run rates of say Russian oil sales or uh, exports through like March of this year, had nothing, uh, no data from after the war had started. And if you looked at a lot of the other sources, right, the, uh, the import sources, uh, the people that were either buying that oil or selling other consumer goods and, you know, military goods into Russia, all of that stuff had just cratered and people weren't factoring that in. This Yale report did a very good job of showing that like, look, people just haven't been looking at the data. Thousand companies are leaving here. People are going way beyond even the official sanctions. So I was actually quite heartened by that report. But my question still would be, do you think that that is a long-term 
viable sort of strategy from the West. And I know that asking you as like an Austrian, you know, it seems blasphemous or whatever to talk about how, you know, government, government intervention can help end some, some conflict. So yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on sanctions. No, no, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a good question. I mean, you know, national defense is a government intervention. Yep. So, so yeah, we live in the reality uh, that is not uh, utopian and, or actually is not a dream. Maybe that's the better, better word. Now, uh, since, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a big fan of Austrian economics, I would say that the main theme from Austrian economics is to recognize that reality is heterogeneous, it's not homogeneous. And a lot of phenomena that we see in the world, in order to analyze it, you have to just admit the first starting point is that what you analyze is not homogeneous and it applies to sanctions. So some of the sanctions are, so first thing is, is justification, right? So there are certain values that you may believe and you, will be, you may be against sanctions because you find them as unfair. And even taking this uh, moral starting point, some of the sanctions are justifiable even from the veteran perspective. For example, personal sanctions against government officials, Russian government officials. So this is, you can easily justify them. Um, especially when you recognize certain individuals cooperating with, uh, with the regime that you do not accept in terms of, um, in terms of uh, justice. Uh, another thing is the efficacy of the sanctions. Uh, some of the f sanctions are uh, efficient, some of the f uh, sanctions are inefficient. Some of the sanct sanctions are even stupid, uh, meaning that they uh, actually lead to uh, unintended consequences. Right? Some of the sanctions that are actually hitting private Russian citizens who are not involved in the war, um, you sort of unite politically those people under the regime. Uh, it's not a general rule, but this is something that can also happen. Uh, what else? Other sanctions, for example, in terms of international market for energy. That's another story. Uh, United States is a nice country uh, in terms of energy market. Well, not fully nice, but like <laughs> nicer than Europe. Uh, you have more market mechanisms there. In Europe, unfortunately, energy market is basically, well, of course you have market mechanisms there, but in general, it's being uh, highly, highly regulated and directed by government officials in Europe. And so uh, when we're talking about uh, um, administrative approach to the market, sort of you're making political decisions about this being produced, that not being produced, this being important, this not being important, this being built, this port being built, this port not being built. So sort of you're under interventionist regime anyway. So when you add on top of that some political goal that, okay, since this is directed by the government anyway, how about we achieve another goal of cutting out the extra resources from the aggressive country? So using this uh, description of imperfect world, you can also quote unquote justify to some extent economically those sanctions too. Um, you can also discuss sanctions that cut off the uh, uh, military industry 
Russian military industry from some of the uh, uh, resources that are absolutely necessary, natural resources that are necessary for building tanks, weapons, and so on, so on. And you can also justify those both economically and ethically. So I would say a lot of sanctions kind of look really strange and sometimes, as I said, stupid, but it's not the case that 100% of them are non-justifiable and non-efficient. You mentioned energy costs, uh, and obviously anyone who's turned on the TV or scrolled through Twitter has seen the energy price charts for Europe. So the whole thing looks entirely unsustainable, and, and we're starting to see some advertising, or I wouldn't call it advertising, but messaging uh, in the UK. I saw it where you know it boiled down to being cold equals support for Ukraine, which maybe is true. Um, but you know, how does this play out? You know, in in Europe, it's going to start getting cold in a few weeks, or it'll be cooler in a few weeks. So. Are these energy prices cold? Brace, brace yourself. I mean, is that the sentiment or what? Uh, what's the reality? I, I really don't know, to be honest. But um, we'll see. Well, I mean, every country is different. So Scandinavian countries will probably be safe, right? They have extra extra reserves. Yeah. Um, how this will happen in Poland? Poland has it doesn't really have sustainable in general uh, sustainable energy policy. Uh, in Germany, it also depends on what they do with the nuclear uh, power plants. I mean, this is another good example of how politics decides about what's going on in the energy market. I mean, <laughs> Germany in the last 20 years decided to turn off their nuclear power plants because of ecological, uh, ecological issues, despite the fact that it's a basically zero carbon, zero carbon source of energy. <laughs> So, so they switched, they switched, of course, there's nuclear waste, but you know, nuclear waste is something you can actually easily, well, quote unquote easily, you can sort of store it, like you can deal with, with the issue of, of, uh, toxic materials when you, when you, when you are using, uh, nuclear energy. So they switched that for carbon emissions in the, uh, autocratic, uh, uh, country uh, that is being Russia, right? In order to produce more carbon, but outside of European Union. But it's, it's an example of political decision. It's not a market decision. And if the decision was made the other way, it, that's also a political decision. So that's my point that you have always politics involved in the energy, energy market. This is the market actually, a market that I actually really, really hate because it's not a classical market. I mean, it would really be beautiful if you could just produce energy uh, from particles that are present everywhere in the world. It would solve so many problems, especially geopolitical problems, right? Yeah, gas, gas is absolutely the most weaponized uh, energy market that there is. And Russia has a monopoly on that with uh, their pipelines. It's 100% weaponizable. It is unfortunate, as you said, that Germany has not had the foresight uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, but certainly 10 after Fukushima that they uh, decided to have this knee-jerk reaction uh, in particular. That's definitely an issue there. I mean, would this even have happened if, if there was, you know, something close to energy independence in Europe? I mean, the, the leverage wouldn't even exist for the Russians to make this gamble, I don't think. Yeah, we need more innovation in the energy market. We need faster innovations in 
new resources for kilojoules and we also need more and more innovations in the battery markets that's another thing we need as soon as possible i mean it will happen but it, it's it's linear growth it's not exponential growth like growth in knowledge or in other other sectors yeah and maybe a 40 percent chance uh less alec that's i guess what germany relies on yeah and, and it's also it's not only an economic issues i mean state let's state the obvious because some people forget about this it's a national defense issue sure right it's it's an issue so so if you remember classical liberals about night watchmen, right? The state that is interested only in making sure about the external and internal safety. Uh, in the current world, it also apparently applies to energy markets. There are certain countries that are watching this conflict and they're thinking we need to sanction proof our economies. And there are other countries who are looking at this thinking we need energy independence. Um, but the the outcome is, you know, further splitting and uh, I think a detachment from this interconnected uh, economic model that we're currently in, you know, you could call it globalism. Um, but everyone is looking around thinking we, we've got to rely on ourselves more. Um, and I think that ultimately that there's some positives to that, but um, there's some risk in that too, because the interconnectedness, you know, increases the cost of some of these excursions. Yeah, and it also depends on the sphere, right? It depends um, uh, what your connections are. I mean, if you're a country that's being separated by hostile, hostile countries around you, then yeah, apparently you need some form of industry that allows you to build weapons internally when something happens and they cut you off from all the supplies. But but if you're just surrounded, if you're not surrounded, if you just have one hostile country on one side and there is a sphere for example, uh, like we have in the Western sphere, uh, where you can get the supplies from the other side, yeah, then you don't have to, you don't need to have this kind of like aut autarkic, uh, autarkic mindset that, you know, you have to produce those things associated with defense internally because you rely, especially when you have to rely on help, external help anyway. Another one I think regarding, uh, let's say deterrence or uh, solving this problem, as you said, that might only come with a piece deal or exhaustion or it's not necessarily going to come from international arbitration um, since Russia just refuses to follow international law. Uh, I think this is much less. The questions we talked about sanctions, the questions we talk about energy, I think they're much, much stronger as far as this goes. But I do think this is a very political, politically charged issue, especially regarding borders, regarding security. The issue of visas, as you've, you've no doubt seen, it's, it's coming up, you know, the Baltics. Uh, the Czechs, the Finns, I don't actually know yet. Has Poland made a move that they're going to ban Russian tourist visas? I don't think, so. I don't think it's on the table yet. Okay. But, but uh, just regarding this question, I personally believe it's much less uh, important you know, than sanctions, than, than all the energy uh, independence or energy security issues that, uh, that Western Europe faces in particular. But uh, nonetheless, it's a, it's, like I said, it's a big issue. Civil rights of Russians and discrimination against Russians and all of these things. Uh, the Balts, like I said, the Finns, the Czechs, they're very strong on these, uh, basically just saying, look, you guys aren't following the rules. You come in uh, not only breaking international law with Ukraine, but you know, for years and years now, you've drugged 
and killed your own with plutonium and Novichok on our soil, Bulgarian soil, British soil. You're just not following the rules, so you can't come in. I personally believe that should be the stance. Uh, how do you feel about that, that idea with visa bans in particular for Russian tourists? Do you think it'll make any difference? No, I don't think so. It's like, you know, closing McDonald's in Moscow. <laughs> I don't think it will change a lot. Well, that's because they have the equipment still. They can op open up their own brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But <laughs> I don't think that's relevant. You know, some, some people have this idea that you just have to ask them, right? <laughs> Whether you support the, the Russian government or not, but that's kind of silly. Anyone yeah. can lie anyway. Yeah, that's, so, that um, won't work. I say, you know, Russia in general, to a large extent, can be considered as a country that is close to their Western civilization. And part of it that makes it important is the exchange, cultural exchange between the citizens of Russia and citizens of other countries. So I don't think that's a good idea to uh, have this extremely nationalistic approach to the issue because over the long run it, it may be really harmful let me let me keep pressing you though because uh, I'm fully on the side for now that, that we should but but there's a lot of people that also go further and they say this is just russophobic you're being very discriminatory you're not you know like you said you can't just ask them if they support the government or not so okay but here's my next question we're now in like full war in Ukraine it's been going on for six months do you think that there's any merit in parallels with World War II, for example, you know, would it have been Germanophobic to ban German tourists coming into London during, you know, V2 bombings and, you know, early bombings in the early 1940s where Germany is just bombing uh, southern UK and London. I don't think the Brits would have liked to see any Germans come in for tourism into, into Britain. So uh, I wouldn't call it Germanophobic. I would just call it, you know, what it is, an absolute war, uh, invasion of their sovereignty, invasion of their liberty. And there's got to be some way, there's got to be some way to get the message across to the broader populace. And let's be honest, this populace is not anybody in Siberia. This is the Muscovites. This is the people in Moscow, the people in St. Petersburg. The, it's definitely the middle to upper class Russians uh, that just, they're not going to take a stand unless something happens. And it, from what I can see from the shrieking on Twitter, they actually really don't like these visa bans. And to me, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, but uh, going back to this example, what what so what would be so beneficial about making sure wh what would be so harmful in uh, German people uh, going to London in the forties? I mean, would it really? Probably most of them wouldn't go anyway, right? But, <laughs> but <laughs> you get but, some pub fights. You definitely get some. Yeah, pub yeah, fights. but but let's say they did. I mean, some of them. I mean, some of the people. You know, with this famous hit, I forgot the name of this ship that was sunk at the very beginning of the war by uh, by the German army by accident. Lusitania. Yeah, Lusitania. No, no, no. Lusitania was in, uh, no, it's a different different one. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll look that in a second. But anyway, uh, German German citizens were killed there too. So similarly, you you could have some German citizens somewhere being bombed by German army. So I wouldn't say. I don't see this happen. I don't see this as a very efficient tool, simply. Mm. And uh, okay, some people will be nervous. They don't want to see. They want to. They don't want to hear that language. Um, 
the same case probably some Ukrainian people and I understand I, I, I fully understand that sentiment that Ukraine some European Ukraine people just cannot stand looking at the Russian tourists doing something I understand that but but then again you know as a, as a policy direction as a policy rule we sort of have to be blind to some of those things we just cannot I don't think I think that over the long run being uh, collectivist extremely collectivist uh, might actually beat the purpose and, and lead to uh, to negative results. Your view here seems to want to separate out, you know, the Russian people from the regime, which uh, I think is a very optimistic thing. And, you know, if there ever was a regime change, that would have to happen. At the same time, right, all the polling I've so, ever... Sorry to jump yeah, in. Yeah, please. I mean, I mean you, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can also take the approach. You don't have to take the approach all or nothing. As I said, for example, individual sanctions against people working in some of those Russian enterprises, it's perfectly legitimate and justifiable to, uh, uh, to not allow visas or for oligarchs working close to the Russian government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, would, that, that is being done and that makes some sense, especially that they actually live off the money that is being associated with, uh, with military complex, uh, broadly understood. So that makes sense. But for example, not letting in. Uh, I mean, we have to remember that they are also there are also refugees from Russia. No, no, they they can get uh, refugee status with uh, okay, without that. Yeah, that okay, would be a, okay. an so exemption. Just, just, that would be a specific exemption. And okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So so just tourists. So for example, you would ban a person that used to work in McDonald's in Moscow. You would ban that person from going to Baltic countries or to Poland. In the name of what? Yeah, just peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, okay, sorry, that's the wrong question. Of course, you can do a lot of things in the name of peace, but the question is, how good is this method for achieving that goal, right? I take your points. Uh, we're probably not going to be able to solve this one on this show, but uh, I think Alec might have to jump. But Yeah, I have to jump shortly, and um, sadly so, because I'm enjoying the conversation. But I, I'm just curious, a little follow-on to this topic. Uh, it seems like the and we've known this for a long time, right? But uh, the Russian propaganda machine is very strong, at least inside Russia. I find their propaganda a little hokey outside of it, but <laughs> um, but it doesn't look like there's a lot of space between the you know the messaging from Moscow and the belief set of the at least you know large portions of the population. So, what is the chance of actually separating out the Russian people from the Russian regime? Ah, that's a really difficult question. Uh, when I looked at independent uh, questionnaires, it appeared, especially at the very beginning of war, that actually support for the government was really high, uh, the Russian government. So that's kind of depressing and uh, makes you wonder how, I mean, makes you wonder whether internal change is possible. Right, many people are talking about Vladimir Putin, right, that he's central to this conflict, but it may not necessarily be the case. It may be the case that if it weren't Putin, was someone else or someone after him, maybe it would be even worse than it is right now. So it's really hard to judge uh, 
what um, what direction things may take, especially when you consider the views of the Russian people. <clears throat> I mean, when you read some of those questionnaires, you can see a lot of collectivist sentiment and sort of a lot of negative sentiment against the Ukrainian nation. Uh, so it appears, you know, uh, when you look at, uh, for example, Wavrov words, right, in the last 10 years, in the last 15 years, what he was saying, it really looked like he was trolling, uh, for example, Central, uh, Central Eastern nations. It really looked, when you listen to him, you were just like, I mean, he seriously must be joking, right, when he's saying this. Mm -hmm. And after this conflict happened, you might have a revelation. Oh, dear me, he was serious. Mm-hmm. So the question is how, you know, some of the things that, that uh, the officials are saying, how much is it sort of form of diplomatic trolling and how much is it reflection of their actual views and how much those views are resembling in the Russian population. So I don't, I, I, I have no clue how, uh, we may have this connection in there. Um, I know that current circumstances lead us to a conclusion that what happened in the 90s, in the early 90s, was just an absolute miracle in terms of collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and that, you know, we have various internal forces within Russia that, that, that make it... Um, mm, but there are some political strong uh, political sentiments to make it more imperialist, right? Uh, imperialist nation. So yeah, you can read Dugin, for example, right? Mm. Public intellectual, very smart, intelligent person. But you can just read what he's saying and listen to what he's saying. Um, so the question is, is that a reflection of, of the majority of Russian population? I don't really know. Uh, some of the questioners suggest that, uh, that those sentiments, those negative sentiments towards uh, Ukrainian nations, the Ukrainian nation and, and other bordering, some of other bordering nations, they may actually be, they may actually be widespread in societies. This is always a, um, a big question in discussing political elites, right? how far is the elite sort of like end of genius, meaning that it's, you know, it's coming from society and from social, uh, from uh, the culture, from social views, and how much is it imposing uh, their views on the population? Uh, there's a lot of interesting um, research on this, for example, uh, on uh, the Third Reich, right? So how far was the uh, was the party a result of sentiments in society, and how far was it actually imposing their own mm. rule upon them? At certain point in time, uh, they were certainly imposing it, but to some extent, they were sort of like coming internally, endogenously from uh, from the social equilibrium. Interesting. Uh, well, sorry to have to leave early, but pleasure. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Alec. 
Yeah, it was fun. You guys have a fantastic Friday and I will tune in like the rest of the listeners to catch the rest of this. Okay, stay safe. Thank you. Take care, Alec. See you, See you guys. Yeah, actually, you said something very interesting there about uh, you know third right comparisons, which I think uh, in many ways are apropos here as far as the hysteria goes. Is there anything that you have learned just from your proximity to Russia, your proximity to Ukraine, if you could gauge the population particularly, I mean, I'm talking about in Russia here, uh, is it sentiment within that is allowing this to happen or is this imposition from Putin's people, from the Siloviki? Is it, is it really just Putin's war or is there a bit of Russia's war here against Ukraine and the West? It's hard to say, really. Um... We have to remember that um, a lot of things happening in the international relations and political sphere depend, a lot of them depend on infinite small steps. Mm. Well, not infinite, but like small steps, right? So, for example, political order in Russia right now is completely different than it used to be in the 90s. And uh, especially late 90s. Um, <clears throat> there is different approach to political satire, uh, right? So, uh, really, what was going on in the '90s in the media was different than it was going than what is going on right now. If, for example, the current media market in Russia was introduced 20 years ago with one stroke, uh, or like 23 years ago with one stroke, people would oppose that. Uh, so. You have some form of adaptation to changing circumstances uh, in terms of evolving evolving equilibrium, so yep. to speak, right? <clears throat> what people accept as, as part of the reality and what people see as too invasive upon the reality. So similarly, um, I don't know. I would say it also, it also depends about what we're talking about. So, for example, Crimea, right, issue. I think even Navalny, right, uh, was in favor of taking Crimea back, right? Am I correct? He certainly didn't dispute it, and I believe he said something to the effect of, I'm not sure if he full out and came, he, you know, he supported it, but he definitely said Crimea is now part of Russia, it's never going back, something like this. Yeah, so... So, you know, again, it depends about the extent of what we're talking about. Um, Some of the people in Russia simply, you know, believe in those uh, presentations that, you know, the Nazis are uh, blowing up the buildings in, in Eastern Ukraine. So we have to intervene to kick them out. Right. And uh, if the only thing you're watching is just, uh, public television that is repeating this message, then what else can you do? Uh, um, I heard really, I mean, this anecdote, these are anecdotes, but sort of like heartbreaking when you hear about brothers, sisters, cousins, mothers, parents, and so on being separated by the border. Uh, those people living in Ukraine, talking to their families, living in Russia saying that no Nazis are blowing up the buildings here and it's really a full-blown ground invasion by the Russian army. They don't believe them. So 
I mean, again, these are anecdotes, but it would be interesting to see how widespread that, it, that those beliefs are. But, but, you know, when you form your, we sort of, all of us actually, we all form our visions of reality by the usage of media outlets, broadly understood, right? The internet is basic media that we use, and in the internet we have all those smaller uh, defined so-called medias, right? So all of us rely on, on information which technically can be manipulated, right? But the main uh, difference that you actually have uh, is that you just look at how different those media are and it immediately gives you the answer where the media is being controlled and manipulated to such an extent as uh, to such a big extent that allows you to uh, manipulate it in such an extreme way to gain popular support right yeah um, or take take the journalists that's the that's the thing right uh, we know that there are even here even when you're not satisfied with the media market you have different uh, televisions papers having their own journalist jumping on the bandwagon just going to the front and giving you uh, uh, giving you some form of information, even if it's just not clear, even if it's just messy, you know that sort of anyone can do it, go there and send it, which is not the case on the other side of the front. There's a lot of levels here and I, I um, just an infinite number of variables, as we know, always affecting the situation. So we have to be careful. And this is, this is, this is a good, sorry to jump in again, but this is a, this is a good, uh, litmus test, right? Where you, some, sometimes it's good to take a uh, fresh perspective, take a step back and ask yourself a question. So how do I form my views? I mean, I depend on, you always form your views based on some form of information, where you get your information from. And that place where you get your information, like how, how much information does it have from, from variety of sources? Right. This is always a good thing to do, uh, just to make sure that you are not fooling yourself. Yeah, hundred percent. It's funny because I've said this on other shows, but you know, there's this political football. If we would just uh, take the let's go back to the U.S. libertarian view, uh, where sort of everything is about the U.S. and uh, it's the U.S. empire. We we are disillusioned with the U.S. empire. We want to stop it. Uh, somehow that makes Ukraine guilty, <laughs> typically in these views, but not really thinking about international law, not really thinking about the media bias that exists in Russia, where there's literally... You can basically sum up those arguments as short skirt arguments. Mm. That's basically the type of argument, right? So, you know, the short skirt argument, yep. right? Women, women was raped and the argument is, well, the short was, the, the skirt was too short. So, so similar in here, the victim. you know, we're provoking, 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 and you provoked the bear, the Russian bear, right? I mean, even, even if you were provoking, come on, this, <laughs> it's, not, it's not justifying, right? And I also, I kind of find it funny that libertarians are making this argument because that's basically a pro-gun control argument. Uh, the argument being, you know, Ukraine might, may invite, may be part of NATO at, in the future. They wouldn't be part of NATO next year. They could be part of NATO in a couple of years, and if they became part of NATO, then that would threaten Russia. Probably if 
NATO, NATO was closed here, um, it would decrease the military power of Russia, although there would be no threat of existential. There would be no existential threat because, uh, because of the atomic weapons, even if, right, even if Russia was fully surrounded by NATO nations, it wouldn't make a difference because of the existential threat is not there on the table because there's always uh, atomic weapons, mutual destruction which makes invasion of Russia impossible. Yeah, and no one no one is talking about invading Moscow, mind. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But 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 the thing about gun control uh, um, uh, analogy uh, is that uh, you know, the argument is they had to intervene because Ukraine could be part of NATO and could be in some way related to potential invasion of Russia. But but hey, they they are not part of NATO. They don't have the guns to use against Russia. Unfortunately, and you're making an argument. So we have to, we have to, we need to have a international gun control on the Ukrainian nation because they could, they could, they could have weapons in the future, and in the future they could invade. So that's the same argument. Like we have to regulate the gun market, right? We have we need regulation of gun control because you know people might have guns and they might use them wrongly. All of these points are relevant that we've been talking about, but I just find it interesting that you know the political football. If you look at this from the United States perspective, and yes, I have you know dual nationality, I live in Eastern Europe, so I have, I'd like to think I have a little bit of both perspectives. But here I am, you know, siding with Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, you know, plastic Nancy Pelosi, who's going into Taiwan and <laughs> showing support to these nations. And, and yes, I know her son was like there and maybe he has interest in semiconductor companies and all the rest. Like there is no uh, glorified principle here in the top, top representatives of, of the United States government. I'm not saying that's, that's all what it comes down to. But with 100% certainty, we can, we can say that Eastern European nations have made their choice uh, coming into the NATO alliance that has something to do with the United States in it, but far, far from everything to do with it. They've made their choice. They've run away from the Soviet Union as fast as possible. They've run away from the Warsaw Pact as fast as possible. So what do you make of it where we literally have, you know, sovereign soil, international law, all of it being broken, invaded, and you still have classical liberals here. I mean, do you talk to them? Like your, your Mises Institute friends in the US, are they just... I would say you can make two types of arguments uh, on part of the United States. As a United States citizen, one part of argument that you can make is that, you know, we just shouldn't be involved in this. And if you say that, I respect it. It's, it's, it's a fine statement. Yeah. But there is a difference between saying this and making a second statement by saying, oh, but this is... Short skirt. Yeah, short skirt argument, exactly. It's, it, it's sort of like, kind of reminds me about COVID debate, right? I mean, you can easily be against lockdowns and against extreme government intervention that, you know, crippled world economy and so on and so on. But you don't really need to support this by making a statement that common cold is worse than COVID, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to... There, there, there is no necessity. One doesn't require the other, right? Sort of like you can also, but you know, it's a general rule and a general problem that you can see in not only in libertarian circles but in general in various bubbles, right? Is that if you, for example, believe that government is wrong about something, I don't know, they are wrong on monetary policy, right? They, they are wrong on monetary policy, but it doesn't mean that they have to be wrong on cardiology, right? But this is something you actually see uh, in crypto community, for example, right? Uh, 
that somehow if the government is wrong about something, it has to be wrong about everything. Or somehow if the government is lying to us about something, you know, it has to lie about everything. That's not a good rule of thumb. I was young, as I imagine you were quite young. I was seven when the Berlin Wall fell and, you know, nine basically when the Soviet Union was dissolved. But my father was very much involved here, traveling over back to the Baltics a lot. And like, this was part of our family. And, you know, we had family who was deported to Siberia, all the rest. So 1989, 1990, 1991 was an incredible feeling of freedom and liberty coming to Europe, which was so needed and something that any Austrian or classical liberal in the United States should remember and champion and, and learn lessons from. I believe that this is happening now. And I think since 20, everything I've read about Ukraine tells me that really the full clean break already happened with Maidan in 2014. Like they have been on the path. Unfortunately, we haven't paid attention. We didn't recognize the Budapest memorandum, but like they are on the way, regardless of what you might think as a libertarian of the European Union or NATO or different institutions, Ukraine is on that path to true freedom. And yes, in 2022, we don't have, you know, perfect private systems with perfect private property that is privately defended by private defense agencies and private insurance. We just, that might be a thousand years from now. It might never happen. One of my favorite sort of uh, sayings is, is uh, Milton Friedman's son, David Friedman, you know, he, he always says that his father thought that anarcho-capitalism probably wouldn't work, but it might. And he, he, David Friedman, pretty much thinks the opposite, that anarcho-capitalism probably will work, but it might not. <laughs> That's all you really can say at some point with these, with these concepts. And uh, until we get there in 2022 or in 1989, or in 1945, whenever it might be, we absolutely need to defend the classical liberal values or even liberal democratic values to use those you know, words that sometimes libertarians hate. And yes, that means superimposing our values on some institutions. You know, using those two words uh, and directing them at American libertarians, liberal and democrat, is not a good rhetorical strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell me what I, sh what I should say better. <laughs> no, no, but I get your, yeah, I get your point. Um, you know, Chomsky once commented on anarchists. Uh, of course, he meant more... Uh, um, communists and anarchists, but yeah. uh, he applied it in general to, to anarchistic leftist movements which are against private property. But what he said there, I think, also can apply to any anarchist, is that he said that, you know, anarchists, when they try to fight for a better, better world, um, they don't necessarily, even if they want to overthrow the current government, they don't necessarily overthrow, meaning change it institutionally, fully, it doesn't mean that they have to burn all the existing institutions uh, on the way, right away, Yeah. right? So I think it also could apply to people who consider themselves anarcho-capitalists. Um, so similarly, I mean, every anarcho-capitalist or almost every anarcho-capitalist is calling the police when they are threatened, right? I mean, even, even when you think you can substitute the police, of course you can, right? Similarly, you can easily have private roads, more easily than that, of course. You can have private roads, but, you know, you're using the public ones since this is what you have. You operate with this, uh, same with schools, etc., etc. Of course, all those things have their nuances and maybe every single case requires different analysis, moral analysis, different economic analysis and so on. 
Yeah, but <clears throat> again, having these international institutions, uh, for example, when you have European Union, uh, as an anarcho-capitalist, let's, let's take this case. So six years ago, I think, or five years ago, I don't remember, Poland introduced, Polish government introduced new tax, new excise tax on top of uh, value-added tax. And uh, it, or actually it was on the verge of introduction, maybe. It was killed by European Union because it was against some uh, uh, equity rules about how you can levy that, that tax on various uh, institutions and industries. And so the question is, you know, it's a big institution, big governmental institution, uh, European Union, but hey, you know, it's, it's bigger than the Polish government and look what happens, something beneficial, right? So, uh, so yeah, Interesting. You, have, you have sometimes those institutions, uh, or, or for example, the, some European um, Commission will not allow, uh, for example, for some um public uh help with the funds with the money it also happened i think when was it 10 years ago where one of the shipyards in poland received public funding uh after a few years the european union said that's illegal it cannot happen you shouldn't have done it and you should receive the money back and then it fall it has fallen it went into bankruptcy so uh so yeah there are things done by governmental and public institutions, which lead to better results and, and, and good changes. Sounds blasphemous coming from Mises Institute founder. Matt. I mean, I mean, but this is like, again, if the government, if the international institution said to the local government, you should not introduce this tax and the government is not doing it or is saying you should not subsidize this public entity. Yep. And the local government, sort of smaller government, national government, not the local, but the national government is sort of backing out from this. Okay, so we're not spending this money. Okay, so we're not putting this new tax in place. Is that a blasphemy? <laughs> I would debate that. I, I, I would not debate you on that. Yeah, it's definitely complicated. And uh, I think the hard problem sums it up. You know, I mean, we, we call it the hard problem. It's, uh, it's a good term to describe it. And yeah, we're just not, we haven't, quite gotten to the point where we have 8 billion sovereign flags. Uh, we have, you know, just around 200 and yes, yeah, smaller states are better. We need to support small states in their fight for independence and freedom and uh, staying away from a foreign aggressor. So, uh, as far as I can tell, all of those things are in line. And I think it, yeah, maybe just to follow up to one more thing I was saying before about, you know, the feelings of freedom and the feelings to me that this is like a renewal of independence for Ukraine, uh, right now. And I'm sure that they will get there. I think you just got to look to the more larger voices in the freedom space to see that they're typically winning out in the short run. You know, I mean, Milton Friedman, I didn't like his monetary policy at all, but he was a glorious speaker to freedom, winning the Nobel Prize and the speeches that he would give in the Free to Choose series. I mean, anytime he's talking about freedom and liberty in Eastern Europe, he was spot on. And I think the same thing is with his son. And I think the same thing is with a lot of classical liberals that you wouldn't quite call, uh, you know, Misesians or anarcho-capitalists or whatever. Uh, someone reminded me of this, you know, the votes that are going through on these packages, again, we're talking about 
Western aid, U.S. aid, uh, they're pretty much bipartisan. They're pretty much uh, overwhelming. I don't remember, it was like 98 to zero in the Senate, for example. But, you know, again, I'm not a fan of like big government and taxes and all the rest. But when you're talking about the hard problem, you're talking about people's lives, you're talking about saving people's liberty on their soil and choosing your own alliance. Uh, it seems quite clear to me and it seems that really the, I'm actually heartened by the quote mainstream establishment that we seem to, at least from what I can tell in the West everywhere, except for maybe Hungary, which maybe we can talk about if you want. I'm not actually too familiar with the situation, but by and large in the quote West or in Western Europe, in liberal democracies, United States, Canada, I think regarding this specific issue, by and large, I think we're falling on the right side of history here. And I, and I hope we continue, I hope we don't lose faith. I think, I think you, uh, you summed it up nicely. And yeah, perhaps that, you know, exhausts ourselves for the Ukraine topic today, although I'll never grow tired of, uh, of speaking about Ukraine. Just wondering, you know, anything else, Matt, on Ukraine, perhaps Hungary's view on the situation. Are you any closer to that in Poland? Uh, I'm always curious about the latest of what might be going on uh, down there. Some of the arguments made by Orban, you can understand, right? Some of the arguments that he, he, he makes. Um, and, and something that is being called Russophobia, yet to some extent does exist. Right and not not in Hungary, <laughs> but but it does exist this sort of hostility towards Russia, and that's part of the argument. What I think it's important to have cultural exchange and still allow some some tourism some tourism by uh, by Russian citizens is that I think. Sure, in the short run, sometimes association of citizens with the government of those citizens, yeah, it may appear in the short run that it's good, you know, you hit the citizens, you hit the government. But I think in the long run, <clears throat> the good strategy is to make sure that people don't associate individuals with the institutions in 100%. So let's not associate the citizens 100% with the government over the long run. Because it, in the long run, it's a good strategy for individualism to flourish, to make sure that we do everything in our, uh, in our hands, everything possible that we can do to recognize human beings as autonomous entities, which are everyone is a souvenir individual. Everyone is not part of uh, anyone else's body. And because in the long run, this will lead to beneficial results uh, to humanity. So I diverged from your question about Hungary. Look what happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's interesting. And it's, uh, it's good to keep challenging me on that point because there's a lot of us uh, in, right on the border of Russia that, that do feel a little bit different. But um, I will say this. Listen, uh, I'm a huge fan of the dissidence that is going on by people like Vladimir Karamorza, who's in jail, uh, going back, the hero that he is, frankly, has been poisoned twice. And uh, the Kremlin hates him and now he's in jail and they're gonna throw everything they can, including him just saying the words war, that he's gonna have, you know, like 10, 15 years in prison. Uh, Navalny, of course, obviously everything that he's doing, regardless of maybe some nationalist views he might've held in the, pa in the past, I mean, he's going up against 
quite a challenge and, and he's, a, he's a genuine political prisoner now in, uh, in Siberia in very difficult prison in Russia. You saw Boris Nemtsov, who was killed a few years ago. He would have been probably the main uh, contender against Putin had they ever had a free and fair election. And you have, you know, as far as I know, between Moscow and St. Petersburg, I'm happy to be corrected on this, but I'm pretty sure you have about a million Amon, these uh, secret police, Russian stormtrooper type, black, uh, no identification, guns and baton waving thugs that basically, you know, you can't see them, you can't see their face. And it's unconstitutional in Russia for a few years now to have, uh, this is partly because of Pussy Riot, as I understand, uh, it's unconstitutional to protest in a group of more than one, one person. So two persons or more, that's an illegal protest and you can go uh, be arrested for that. So look, I get it. The Russian people, the dissidents, the genuine people that just want to get on with their lives, but also want to end the war, they're up against it. They're absolutely up against it. It's not easy. We need to support them. And uh, I absolutely agree with that. I say that often. Um, we need to support them. And the other side, though, it's, it's not easy for them. You know, Cardo Morza, before he was in jail, he would always say, uh, look, all we're asking for you, you know, this is Putin's war on aggression in Ukraine. Uh, this is, and he would say this obviously for years, even before this particular invasion started in February of 2022. But this is Putin's war and act of against, uh, aggression against Ukraine. This is Putin's autocratic society we're fighting. All we're asking is for your support, your encouragement from the West. But we Russians, we will settle this ourselves. This is what he says. I agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. I think he's a hero. Uh, he's in jail right now in Russia. I encourage people to you know follow his words. But you know, look, it's tough. I don't know. I don't know the best way to support uh, Russians. I'm absolutely uh, willing and able to hear your ideas there about about free exchange. And uh, certainly there are, as, as I mentioned before, there's always uh, the dissident option to get a, uh, I forget the exact term, but let's say a refugee status visa. That absolutely would never be closed from Europe. But yeah, the, whether, whether this tourist visa thing works, whether it doesn't, whether it's sanctions, you know, it's, they're up against it. They're really up against it. And all I can say is, um, you know, I, I certainly support them. I certainly support uh, anything that they will do to end their country's aggression in, uh, in Ukraine. And that's really important. You know, one of my friends used to say, one of my colleagues used to say, um, you know, war is worse than highest possible minimum wage, mm. right? So in a way you cannot really imagine because of all those government interventions that you have directed at your property, they are sort of attacking your past. Right? So they are destroying your past, your work, what you did, what you achieved. Um, whereas war in itself is just destroying your future and future of the people. Uh, it's really horrible. You cannot really imagine a worse government intervention in war. So this is a, an absolutely crucial thing to remember when you're, when you're discussing this issue and, and making strange statements also yeah. right, about justification for a war. In general, war is never justified. Yeah. Uh, of course, I mean, unless you mean self-defense, but that's, I wouldn't call it war, although it's called just war, right? You can defend yourself. And no matter how disillusioned you are with your own government, it's quite strange to somehow blame the victim. Yeah. Well, listen, Matt, it's been really fantastic. Uh, it's great to 
you know, finally speak to you and finally uh, discuss some of these issues. We went much longer on the Ukraine topic than I thought we would, but I, for, for us, it's super important. And I know it's super important for you. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. So thanks for your, for your thoughts here. Thank you. Yeah. Listen, as we close it, you know, any, uh, anything's coming up for you and, and Mises Institute in Poland, anything else to tell our listeners about where they might be able to find you? Well, we'll be having in uh, one day Austrian, uh, it's mostly directed at, at, the, at the Polish, um, at the Polish audience on the 20, let me see, will be Saturday 20, 23rd, is that correct? No, 22nd on Saturday, 22nd of October. We'll be having an Austrian conference, so like one day conference, and we will have Ido Hulsman and Mingardi as, as lecturers. So nice. If you're close to Poland, not far away, and you want to hear those two lectures, you can, you can stop by Wroclaw. Great, Matt. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, your thoughts today, and uh, have a great weekend. I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you very much. It was great to be here.